Hello and welcome to Foresight with me, Greg Williams. Today we're going to explore how artificial intelligence is currently perceived and the wider societal impacts of AI that are changing how power is concentrated across the world. So even if AI infiltrates many aspects of our lives from security, banking, retail through to climate change and politics, most people's vision or understanding of it is that it's quite abstract and immaterial. So in this podcast today, we're going to discuss how AI is made in a, in a wider sense. So the environmental costs, the labor processes, the way that it classifies and, and shapes uh, our understanding of the world around us. Before we start the conversation, I have a request. If you're enjoying this series, I please encourage you to go on whatever platform you get your podcasts on and give us a five-star review because it really does help us to grow the wide community. Thank you for that. Anyway, I'm delighted to welcome our guest speaker today, Kate Crawford. Kate's an author and leading scholar of the social implications of AI. Her work focuses on understanding large-scale data systems in the wider context of history, politics, labour and the environment. Now, books about AI tend to talk about the subject in very abstract terms, right? So they focus either on AI as a, a general purpose technology that'll offer new insights and a new understanding of the world and free us humans up to be creative. Or they focus on very kind of negative aspects such as the impact of automation on, on job security or the use of autonomous weapons. Uh, and what I think is fascinating about Kate's new book, Atlas of AI, is that it looks at how the global networks underpinning AI technology are damaging the environment. So Kate travels to see uh, lithium mining, uh, the human costs of extraction, uh, and the way that it could centralize power. It's really a book about the way that AI is shaping our world through the lens of its social, material, and political impact. So with that, uh, delighted to welcome Kate. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here. So um, I really enjoyed the book. I think it's a very fresh and original take on, on AI. And I'd love to start really just towards the beginning uh, when you tell the story of, about a horse called Clever Hands, which could seemingly <laughs> add, could seemingly subtract, it could tell the time, could spell out words. So why did you decide on this as a starting point for a book about artificial intelligence? <laughs> Yes, absolutely. It, it can seem a bit odd that I'm starting a book about AI with a horse from the late 1890s. But but it, it's such an amazing story. And, and strangely enough, it has lasting relevance to how AI is being built today. So, you know, Clever Hans was the toast of Europe at the turn of the 20th century. I mean, this was a horse who could add, who could tap out, you know, the, the day of the week just using his hoof. People would flock to these big public events to display what was seen as a new form of intelligence. And, you know, his trainer, uh, Von Austen, was this extraordinary man who really believed that we could sort of train animals to display human-like intelligence. But of course, you know, there was this you know, international concern that this, this might actually not be what we thought it was. And in fact, there was a, a series of investigations, you know, psychologists were brought in. 
And, and what was found was that actually Von Austen, as the trainer, was cueing the horse unintentionally, really subconsciously, with you know his own sort of posture and breathing and facial expressions. So ultimately, what was fascinating about this moment of the clever Hans riddle was the fact that intelligence is something that we quite often reflect in ways that we assume will be like us. So von Austen wanted this horse to be displaying human intelligence rather than, of course, its own horse intelligence, which was clearly quite significant. Um, but this has now inspired a term, the, the, the so-called clever Hans effect, also known as the observer expectancy effect, which is this influence of experimenters, their unintentional cues on their subjects. And this relationship, I think, between Hans and von Austen, I think, points to the complex mechanisms by which you know, biases will find their ways into the systems we create and how we also become entangled with the systems that we study. And I think this is a very important lesson for how we currently construct this idea of artificial intelligence and why we assume that computers are in fact like human minds. And interestingly too, in fact, in machine learning, this term is used, the clever Hans effect, for the way in which we often overtrain systems to sort of really create the answers that we expect them to give. So in so many ways, this horse <laughs> back in you know, the start of the 20th century is I think a very powerful lesson for many of the traps that I see now in terms of how we talk about AI. Yeah, it's a really interesting way of, of, of perceiving the way that you know, we think about, as you say, intelligence in these very kind of um, you know, narrow kind of humanistic ways. And I think that it that also, I guess, sort of highlights one of the fundamental challenges that certainly I have with AI and, and, and I'm sure uh, maybe others do as well, is that we don't have a sense of how to, to really measure it, right? We only perceive it in, in quite abstract terms. Well, you know, as somebody who has, has researched AI for almost 20 years now, I think you, know, you have pointed to one of the, the, the most serious problems of the field, which is that we do perceive AI as somehow disembodied, immaterial, abstract, at a remove, something which is really about sort of math and algorithms in the cloud. But certainly one of the things that has you know, transformed my thinking as a researcher in this space is really looking at how AI is made in the fullest sense of that term, to sort of bring it down from the clouds, if you will, and to really ground it in what are the supply chains required to actually construct planetary scale computation? What are the forms of labor that are often hidden in terms of actually making these systems work and appear intelligent? And then also, what are all of the forms of data and the practices of classification that are needed to make these systems appear to be intelligent? So by looking at this much larger sort of nose to tail vision of how AI is made, really changed my thinking away from this sort of you know, abstract focus on you know, algorithms and you know, highly paid engineers engineers creating you know, innovations to really looking at what are the bigger planetary systems at work and what are the true costs of making these systems? Yeah, and I guess at one point in the book, towards the beginning, you drive a van from Silicon Valley to a mining community in Nevada. What were you trying to demonstrate by, by doing that? Well, I think so much of the focus on AI has really been on Silicon Valley and sort of, you know, you know the great men who founded now are currently sort of the, the wealthiest companies in the world. And what I did was actually say, instead of focusing 
there, why don't we actually look at the components that build these systems? And that required actually driving away from Silicon Valley quite literally and going out to the mines. In fact, I went specifically to the last functioning lithium mine in the United wow. States in a place wow. called Silver Peak. And it's an extraordinary place to go. It's this gigantic desert plain, which has huge white lakes of crystal, which are being extracted to produce lithium, also known as gray gold. Lithium has become sort of essential to large-scale computation for one reason, which is reusable batteries. And of course, you have a few grams of it in an iPhone. You have many kilograms of it in a Tesla car, but this material is actually essential to so many of the systems that we rely on today. But it is, of course, operating within this economy where we're reaching critical levels. And in fact, a recent report from the University of Gothenburg indicated that if we don't get better at recycling this material, and, you know, surprise, surprise, we're very bad at recycling it, we could be running out as soon as 2040. So it really, again, changes our thinking on this idea that these systems of computation leave no imprint, that there's somehow you know, green technologies that aren't also going to reach very serious limits in the next few years. So thinking about, again, these material layers of artificial intelligence is part of the reason I actually went to these places. But you know, there's another reason too, and, and I think it's because so many AI researchers you know, stay in their labs and you know, we look at a lot of data and we write a lot of papers. I think that's part of the problem. I think part of the reason we have this sort of very immaterial and abstract idea of AI is that we don't go to these places. We don't go to the mines. We don't go to the Amazon fulfillment warehouses. We don't go to the places where people are painstakingly having to label data. It's, it's by actually going to those locations that I think we get a much richer vision of what's actually going on. So for me, there was you know, a methodological choice as well as you know, what it is to tell the story of AI today. Yeah, I'm really interested to 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 know from you. Um, you know, obviously, most people think about AI in this abstract way. I think every other book I've ever read about AI has talked about it in kind of these abstract ways, or maybe it's talked about the ethics around it or the potential of it. Um, I'm really intrigued to know at what point did you start thinking about AI in this this physical sense that you're describing? No, it's a great question. And, and certainly, I think the material analysis of AI just really hasn't been part of the story. And for me, the turning point came around a very specific project called Anatomy of an AI System. This was a project I did uh, with Professor Vladan Jola, um, started back in you know, 2016. And we were really designing a project to understand how voice-enabled AI systems work. So you might think of Alexa or Siri or Cortana. And we looked at a single Amazon Echo, you know, often known as that little sort of cylinder that you might have sitting in your house if you, you know, aren't opposed to listening devices. And we were looking at how the data channels work. We understood this pretty well. So we were basically sketching that out. And then we thought, but hang on, where do the components come from? What if we actually tried to trace the mines where these components were sourced and then smelted and produced? And so then we started to look at all of the various supply chains that go into a single Amazon Echo, all the way, in fact, 
to the end of life of a device where they get thrown away, generally in less than four years, according to many sort of consumer uh, studies. And they sit in these e-waste tips, sort of leaching toxins in places like Ghana and Pakistan. So by looking at that entire life cycle, I mean, it took us you know, multiple years to complete that project. And then we designed a huge map, a sort of seven by five meter map, so that you can go and have a look at all of the components that it takes to make you know, Alexa say, hello, what's the weather today? <laughs> that what simple exchange invokes this enormous network into being that influences the lives of many, many thousands of people. So you can have a look at that, in fact, at Anatomy of AI. Um, just have a, have a search and you can have a look at that map. But by doing it, that was where I realized that rather than just looking at a single device, we had to actually look bigger, to look at the entire AI industry and to sort of, if you will, create this large atlas to understand all of the ways in which this type of convenience that so many of us use is having much wider and more long-term impacts. And I was going to ask you, actually, yeah, I assume that was where the kind of the seed for the idea of, 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 of the atlas of AI, uh, you know, the title of the book also came from. Exactly right. And of course, you know, atlases are, are unusual books. You know, they allow you to sort of look at an entire continent or to, to zoom in to a specific mountain range or a city. You know, it's, it's a way of looking that I think takes us away from the abstract and sort of puts us in context, gives us a viewpoint of the world, if you will. So I think for me, you know, to, to really sort of think about this cartographic approach of AI was, was really helpful. And, and certainly I've been inspired by uh, thinkers like the physicist and technology critic Ursula Franklin, who, who wrote about the way that maps can actually assist us to bridge these gaps between the known and the unknown. They allow us to sort of open new pathways of thinking, which I, I think we absolutely need in terms of these very tired stories about AI. Um, but there's another way I think where you know, maps are important here too, which is that, of course, they trace the lines of empire. They show us where sort of territories were, were carved by you know, great colonial powers. And, and certainly we have right now the, the great empires of AI, the, the, the technology houses indeed making new maps, creating in many cases proprietary maps of the world in which we live. So, you know, the idea of an atlas of an AI is, is also thinking about the way in which AI is creating a proprietary atlas and how do we actually intervene to allow for different ways of understanding the world. Yeah, you you talked about the the colonial powers and obviously the uh, the Silicon Valley powers, as it were, that we're, uh, we're we're seeing sort of the rise of at the moment, or maybe not the rise, sorry, the the, the dominance, the market dominance of. Um, there's so much conversation around ethics and AI, but you frame it, I think, in a really interesting way, which is focusing on on power. Can can you just talk a little bit more about this? Dig dig, dig into that a little bit. What why is that a good jumping off place? Do you think to discuss uh, AI? Mm. Well, certainly ethics have, have come into prominence in the last five or so years. Um, and, and we've seen a very common industry response, which is to create ethics principles. Um, there's something of the order of more than 250 frameworks for AI ethics in Europe alone. Um, some of those come from corporations, some of them come from uh, industry bodies. Um, but certainly what we're not seeing is the connection of those ethical principles to implementation. How will they be enforced? How will they become accountable to a broader public? And so certainly what we're seeing is sort of a focus on 
the ethical ends for AI rather than a focus on the means. So by shifting this focus away from just ethics, which is necessary, certainly, but not sufficient, and by looking at power, we can actually ask different questions. We can say, who currently has the power to design and reproduce large-scale AI systems? Whose interests does it optimize? You know, who do we actually who is actually assessing what happens when these systems go wrong and which communities will be most affected? So I think in this sense, when we start to ask questions around power, we look at these broader political economies of AI. And that's absolutely the focus of my book. But I think more broadly, a focus that we need to bring to say, you know, who is benefiting most from the system and who might be harmed? And I think that produces a very sort of different set of questions than, than producing just yet another series of ethical principles such as do no harm. I, I think instead we have to follow the money and say, okay, wh who is actually benefiting most from this industry? And in that sense, asking these bigger questions around surveillance, labor exploitation, and data protections, there I think we're gonna reach a, a much more substantive set of answers. I'd love to talk a little bit now about the way that AI is trained and the way that we're we're shaping AI. And I know you've you studied ImageNet, uh, you know, which is a way of kind of classifying and, and teaching machine learning. Um, can you talk a little bit about the challenges you 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 think we face regarding classification and the impact of that, and maybe some kind of parallels that you can you can sort of see from from ways that we've uh, you know we've thought about systems in the past. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that's important to start with is, is to think a little about the ways in which we create, say, supervised machine learning. And in order to create a system that can tell the difference between, say, an image of a cat and an image of a dog, you have to feed that system many, many thousands of images so that it can then predict when it sees a new image, whether it's a cat or a dog. Well, similar things happen with images of people. And so one of the things I studied is one of the most famous training sets for machine learning, uh, specifically for object detection, called ImageNet. Now, ImageNet has over 14 million images, and I looked specifically at the section around people. Now, these are images of people just scraped off the internet. Could be you, could be me, could be your high school graduation photograph, could be your images of your kids going to school. Um, but these images have been labeled by hand, often by Amazon Mechanical Turk workers, and put into these classif classifications, if you will, these sort of ordered sort of sets of labels. And by studying these labels, you actually start to see the logic of how the system works. And, you know, if there are labels in there for things like CEO or basketballer, which might seem, you know, relatively straightforward, but then you look at who's put in those categories. If all the CEOs are white men and all the basketballers are black men, you're starting to see a type of politics emerge. And then you start to see stranger categories. You start to see categories for things like debtor, well, you might think, well, you know, how can you tell from someone's face the contents of their bank account? Then there are categories for things like bad person and kleptomaniac and alcoholic and drug user and slattern, believe it or not. And indeed, the, the slurs and the offensive terms just get worse and worse and things that I, I won't repeat here. But pretty much most of the appalling terms you can think of are in fact contained in this set and connected to images of people. So this should immediately raise real questions around the, the project of really classifying people like objects. And this idea that you can tell the content, contents of somebody's character or their, uh, their quality as an individual by simply assessing their external appearance. 
But this is indeed one of the claims of machine vision. So what I did was to really start to study the data layer of these systems, which in many cases you know, hasn't received a lot of scrutiny. Training sets are often just applied to you know, create a system and to say, right, we've done it, this works, therefore let's charge on ahead, without actually stopping and asking these questions around how data actually creates a worldview. Now, of course, these kinds of classifications that we see in machine learning have a long history. And one of the things I do in the book is look at where these classifications come from. So many machine learning training sets use racial classifications where they classify people into one of four or five categories. And indeed, that history as well can take us back to the sort of craniologists of uh, Samuel Morton's era, where people were classified into you know, one of four or five racial categories. Again, these ideas which have been completely debunked just in the last 50 years alone, and yet are still being applied in state-of-the-art systems. Similar things could be said for gender. Many machine learning systems today classify you into either male or female. Of course, there's no recognition of the pluralities of gender that we would recognize today. So again, these, these sort of very problematic ideas that have their own politics are being hard-coded into systems that are actually impacting the lives of billions of people. So opening up those classificatory logics has been a real focus of my research over the last many years. And certainly in the book, I look at why we should start to be far more concerned about the way that we're casually applying classifications to people. And, and, and I think that's, that's really fascinating because I think one of the you know, one of the ways that we think about technology is that we can, you know, I'm using air quotes here, we can fix it, right? There's an engineering solution to this. But presumably what you're discovering is that, um, you know, these training data sets and algorithms are really just reflections of sort of some of the, the big societal, you know, challenges that we face. And that the only way of addressing them is to think about sort of, you know, societal fixes rather than you know, a, a so-called engineering fix, as it were. I think that's exactly right. And, and it's certainly been, I think, a trap in the industry that we've seen a focus on ideas of demographic parity. You know, if there's, a, if there's you know, too many images of white people in, you know, the category of CEO, then let's, let's balance that by having a diversity of faces. Rather than thinking, I think, much more deeply around what is the project here? What are we actually doing and what types of politics are we importing in when we actually conduct these types of classificatory experiments? So I think what I've really tried to do in this work is to open up a much bigger perspective to say, let's look at the ways in which these systems are in fact changing our societies and changing the way that we live at a very fundamental level. And to do that, you know, we need to look at the environmental layer. We need to look at labor practices, and we need to look at the way in which data is being used and interpreted. It's only by taking this much wider lens that I think we can more accurately decide where AI should be used and where it shouldn't be used. This isn't something where really we can create small technical fixes. It's something where we have to ask about what kind of world do we want to live in and how is the fundamental bargain of what life is going to look like in future being shifted by systems that are being designed and held by some of the most powerful and wealthy people in the world, and that these systems are and have been proved to be, in fact, widening the asymmetries of wealth and power. So 
again, these are the sorts of questions that I think we need to ask before we commit to using these systems everywhere from healthcare to education to criminal justice, because we actually have to look at those, those core questions of how will these systems change how we live. But we're being told, of course, that, you know, as AI is a general purpose technology, that it does have applications in, you know, the, the ways you describe. So in, in healthcare and education and uh, other ways it will impact, you know, business and society. Um, your, one of your contentions famously is that AI is neither artificial nor intelligent. Can you just uh, just talk about that a little bit? Sort of what, why is that your, 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 um, your contention? Well, our conversation today has, has been sort of a fantastic example of, of how when we actually look at these presumptions of what intelligence is, we start to see that intelligence is socially constructed, it's relational, it, it's institutional. There are so many practices that go into how we think about intelligence. And it, it's fundamentally a social construct. And instead of actually applying it to this idea of how computers do statistical analysis at scale, which is actually a very different mechanism. And in fact, in some ways, I think about that as, as really sort of the, the sort of Cartesian dualism of AI, that we could somehow sort of just extract our minds and sort of place them into computers without thinking of all the ways in which we are actually embedded in a whole series of social relations. Um, so certainly this, this question of, of somehow an abstract intelligence, I think we've, we've seen how that is fundamentally problematic. But neither is it artificial. When we start to trace all of these natural resources, the energy, the human labor, the infrastructures and the logistics that go into making AI, it's, it's not artificial at all. It's profoundly material. So in that sense, we have to start, I think, questioning with greater skepticism the presumptions of AI and to start to look at the the much wider set of political and social structures, and certainly the capital that is required to build AI at scale. So in that sense, I think artificial intelligence is much better understood as a registry of power. Yeah, I mean, one of the ways in which Silicon Valley likes to, to frame technology is simply as a tool, right? Something something to be used. But I, I imagine from you know, your perspective, you know, technology can never be neutral. It can never be objective. Is that right? Exactly right. And look, philosophers have, have said that for, for many decades um, in, in studying AI. In fact, we could even go back to, to some of the earliest founders of artificial intelligence. Joseph Weizenbaum is someone who I've, I've always found particularly fascinating. He created ELISA, which you might remember from, from many, many years ago, um, was a very, very simple chatbot um, that was basically designed to elicit a conversation with a person. Um, and it was you know, a, really a simple set of scripts. But people really found Eliza to be you know, profoundly engaging and in many cases saw this chatbot as being a, a, a true living entity. Um, and Weizenbaum saw this and saw this as being incredibly troubling. And he saw this as really sort of the fundamental error of how we will ascribe greater intelligence and capacity to these systems that are in many cases designed simply to trick us, to, to get us to give up forms of data, to, to trust systems that we shouldn't inherently trust at all. So, you know, Weizenbaum wrote this, this extraordinary book around computational power and human reason in the 1970s that I think still holds up today because he asked these questions around why should we trust these systems? And again, by looking at who controls them and looking at these wider political economies, these questions I think are still incredibly salient. 
And and I wanted to follow up with that and actually ask how how do you think we can build trust with machines? Is there kind of a, a new type of social contract that we could we could start thinking about, or how do we build that sort of sense of um, machines being you know equitable and the the, the as you say the, the vast array of resources and human capital that goes into uh, developing these systems? Um, what does a more equitable system look like? Do you think? Well, rather than the question, you know, how can we trust machines? My question would be, why should we trust machines? Mm -hmm. this, this focus that somehow that is just something that we should do, I think I would really sort of begin to analyze that and say, well, let's look at who actually designs the systems that we use every day. And we are looking at truly just a handful of companies. Less than a dozen companies are really building AI at scale, depending how you count. And then you look at what their interests are and what interests they're designed to serve, which of course is shareholder value. They're not designed to, to make sure that you, know, you are leading a life that might be the life that you would choose, or they're not designed to really protect ideas around democratic values, or really just to be thinking even about the social fabric. So in essence, you might be looking at a mismatch of intentions and desires with these systems. So I, in fact, rather than simply trusting them, I think the question should be, how could we be more skeptical? How could we look at, a, I think in many ways, a more detailed picture of what these systems actually cost, not just individually, but I think collectively and over time. So when it would come to coming up with, a, say, a social contract, as you mentioned, who's making that contract? And, and are, you, are you sort of, in doing so, do you have the same level of, of power and capacity as the companies who are building these systems? Likely not. So, so is it a fair bargain? So I think instead we need to think very differently around what are the sorts of collective forces that we need to bring into being to protect the kind of core democratic values that we would see as being important. And in that sense, I think trusting machines wouldn't be the, the, the first step there. And where do you think this, without sort of the, what you just described, where do you think this is, this is heading? Where's the kind of the next step um, in our relationship with AI heading? Well, certainly if we take the pandemic as a case in point, we've seen, if anything, an increased concentration of power into fewer hands. We've certainly seen an increase in wealth of the people who run technology companies. We have seen in many ways people be more socially isolated and more reliant on these systems and networks that we use for work, for education, for social connection. But those systems are also ingesting all of that data again, for many of the things that we've been discussing, to use that data to drive classifications, to drive assessments, to decide which workers are you know, the ones who are most efficient, to use them to compare them to others, to, in many cases, assess children, to decide by looking at their facial expressions of what their internal emotional states might be, even though, you know, as a sort of a scientific claim, that is on extremely shaky ground. So many of these systems that are being really applied to us every day simply aren't doing what they claim to be doing. And in many ways, again, are enriching the very small group of people that we've been discussing today. So I think in that sense, we're, we're seeing a, an intensification of the dynamics that I write about in Atlas of AI. And in some ways, I think certainly uh, underscoring the urgency of thinking more broadly around how are we structuring society, particularly when we see the ongoing dynamics of this pandemic, and how are we going to ensure a broader political conversation about how these systems are actually putting more power into fewer hands. 
Kate, thank you so much for joining us today here at Wired Foresight. Um, I cannot recommend your book more highly. It's really fresh, original take on, on AI, um, hugely enjoyable and, you know, very entertainingly written and um, really well reported. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Greg. That means a lot to hear. And thank you for this fantastic podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. And Atlas of AI is available now and you can buy it by clicking in the show notes. Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to talk with you, Greg.